Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. This week on the show, reporter Megan Messerly and newly minted podcast producer Jacob Solis sit down to talk about Nevada's upcoming caucus that will be held on Saturday, February 21st. Later, reporter Daniel Rothberg and I are going to talk about how the caucus works in the rural parts of the state and the math behind it. And at the end of the show, I'll test Jacob with some trivia on presidential candidates. But first, let's hear a few Nevada independent stories read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Public Radio. Originally reported by Megan Messerly, the Nevada State Democratic Party is in the process of notifying roughly 1,000 early voting caucus goers that their ballots have been voided for errors just two days before the caucus. The voided ballots from the first three of four days of early voting make up about 2.8% of the 36,000 ballots cast over the three-day period. According to a party official, the overwhelming majority of ballots were voided for lacking a signature, with only about 60 ballots rejected for voters failing to make three presidential preference choices which they were required to do. Party officials are still processing the 39,000 ballots cast on the fourth day of early voting. Early caucus goers whose ballots were voided will still be able to participate in person on Saturday's caucus. Originally reported by Jackie Valley, President Donald Trump delivered a meandering speech Thursday at a Hope for Prisoners graduation ceremony in Las Vegas, at points riffing on the unbelievable treatment of Roger Stone and touting the nation's economy under his watch. It was the president's first public appearance since arriving Tuesday night in Las Vegas as part of a Western swing while Democrats campaign here ahead of Nevada's caucus on Saturday. His speech came shortly after a federal judge sentenced Stone, a Trump confidant and political advisor, to three years and four months in prison for his attempts to hinder the congressional inquiry of the president. Trump wasted no time offering his take on the Stone news, but stopped short of announcing a presidential pardon. In his speech, Trump also encouraged the 29 graduates to avoid succumbing to negativity and instead chart a new path forward for their lives. When this podcast hits your feed, there will be just one day left before Nevada holds its Democratic Presidential Caucus. That means it's officially crunch time for the six leading contenders making a play for this state. But there are lingering questions about just how the caucus process is going to play out, especially with the implementation of new technology at the precinct level and the as-yet-unknown implications of the state's first-ever early voting in the caucus. Here to break it all down for us, as always, is our 2020 reporter, Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start broad first. Can you break down the state of the race as it happens with the caucus this weekend? Right. So I think the sort of general expectation going into Saturday is that Bernie Sanders is the front runner. He did well in both Iowa and New Hampshire. He's expected to do well again here. He has the biggest operation by far on the ground in Nevada with more than 250 staffers dwarfs all the other campaigns teams and bernie sanders as well this is this isn't his first time running right he campaigned here in 2016 he built relationships he had a lot of grassroots energy and support behind his campaign and this time he's brought in experienced campaign operatives who are able to harness that energy so he's the favorite it would seem going into saturday's caucus So breaking down Sanders' strengths here for a bit, it's very tough to know exactly who's voting for whom because polling Nevada is historically difficult. But it appears that Sanders might have a big strength with Latino voters. Do we know where that strength comes from? Yeah, so we've seen looking at the polls that both 
Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden do fairly well with Latino voters. And in talking to organizers here that work in communities of color, not just with the Latino community, but with the African-American community as well, you know, they tell me that these relationships are built over time, right? There's this skepticism that a candidate comes in and is asking for the support of voters of color and making these promises about what they're going to do for voters of color, but not having that time and that relationship to know that the candidate is really going to follow through on their promises. So if you think about, let's start with Joe Biden. He has been campaigning in Nevada. He likes to talk about this while he's on the trail. He's been campaigning in Nevada since he was in his 30s for Harry Reid. You know, it's it's hard to hard to make up for all that lost time, given that Joe Biden is it's now been decades that he's campaigning in Nevada. So he has those relationships with folks. And obviously coming out here to campaign as Barack Obama's running mate solidified those relationships as well. If you think about Bernie Sanders, obviously he hasn't been campaigning in Nevada quite as long, but he was here four years ago and, you know, people got to know him and understand what he stands for. Um, and they remember that and they have been able to watch him over the past four years and what he's done. And he likes talking a lot about on the trail about his consistency. And I think people who are unfamiliar with Bernie Sanders in 2016 have now been following him um, and kind of know what he's all about. And so that relationship exists more so for those two candidates than it does for any of the others. Okay, I want to get to some of the other candidates here quickly, and uh, one of them is Pete Buttigieg, because he has, as you mentioned, an expansive ground game here, but he hasn't spent as much time, or he hasn't focused as hard on Nevada as he did, say, in Iowa, where it was his main focus. So how do you think his campaign has pivoted, sort of post-Iowa and post-New Hampshire, to try and uh, capitalize on those strong performances there and, and carry that on over to a state where he hasn't really campaigned as much? Right. So I think the interesting point to that is, you know, when Pete Buttigieg was starting off, he kind of had to campaign in Iowa because he wasn't well known. He was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And when you're and relatively unknown, some people knew him, he had run for DNC chair, but a still relatively unknown candidate, you know, you have to go to the first early nominating state, Iowa, build those relationships and prove that you can have some level of support. Once he was able to do that, we saw his fundraising numbers increase, and then he finally had the ability to staff up in Nevada. So we saw him hire staff over the summer in about June. They quickly expanded to be being one of the strongest, biggest operations here in Nevada. And his team has done a really good job of organizing on the ground. I think the thinking always was he would need to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire to have any chance in, in Nevada but that he would have this operation so that if he did do well in the first two states, they would be poised to capture that momentum. And so that's now what they're trying to do. Okay. And on the flip side of that coin is uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who did okay in Iowa, then did better than expected in New Hampshire, and now suddenly is ramping up things in Nevada. How have we seen her campaign evolve? Yeah, I think I think her campaign is, is particularly interesting on this point because she has been to Nevada. She's been here quite a few times, but in general, she tended to come for these cattle call type events, labor forums, um, the first in the Western or things of that nature. And she'd maybe hold, you know, one one other event around it. Uh, but she was not, I mean, her, her heart and soul, I think, was was focused on, on Iowa in particular. You know, she visited all of Iowa's 99 counties um, and she proved that she could do well there, right? And then that translated into, she had a great debate performance in New Hampshire that translated into her coming in third in New Hampshire. So she certainly has momentum coming into Nevada. The problem is that Nevada is a caucus state. And in a caucus state, you really have to have a strong organization on the ground. She did not hire any staff in the state until November. 
a lot of that had to do with money, right? She hasn't had the money to be able to do that and have an operation like the other campaigns have. So she's had staff here now for the last couple of months, um, but it's been a small team. And in the wake of Iowa, they brought in more of their folks, their caucus organizers from Iowa. And so now they're at about 50 staffers. But again, they just got here. And I think the question is, you know, they haven't been on the ground organizing in Nevada. So sure, they've organized in a caucus, but they haven't organized in Nevada's caucus. I want to move on because I want to talk about Elizabeth Warren. So her campaign uh, staffed up early in Nevada, but didn't scale the way that you mentioned Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg did. And now she, tough to say, it's very early in the race still, but she's sort of reeling from once being a front runner last year to now being in a position where uh, we don't even know if she'll come in second in Nevada, let alone third or something like that. So I'm curious from your perspective, what you've seen from Warren's campaign heading into this weekend. Yeah, so she has had a team on the ground longer than any other candidate. Her team was the first one to arrive and she did quickly early on have one of the most significant teams. You know, people I was talking to, Democratic operatives, were describing her campaign as a monster and sort of the one to beat. They did some really smart organizing early on, but as you mentioned, they never really grew in size the way that some of the other campaigns did. So I think the question for them is they've made this, you know, they've put the work in, they've made this calculated effort. Um, you know, is the the smart way that they've been organizing enough to carry them through, especially in light of the fact that she hasn't done as well as expected in Iowa, New Hampshire. Um, and talking to voters, though, you know, Warren supporters and even people who are still deciding whether to support Warren, um, you know, as early as just a couple of days ago, people were telling me, you know, obviously they'd like to have seen her do better in Iowa, New Hampshire. But Nevada is a different state. It's a diverse state. So they're not really concerned about those performances as much. They think that she still has a shot here in Nevada. Okay. And so last but not least, I want to talk about Tom Steyer. So he invested heavily in advertising in this state um, in a way that he did not in Iowa and New Hampshire. He basically had the airwaves to himself for months at a time. And that his, again, we don't really have tons of polling to support this, but he has had a presence here that he didn't have in Iowa and New Hampshire. So what could Tom Steyer's uh, support base look like in the caucus? Yeah, I don't think Tom Steyer can be ruled out at all. Like you were mentioning, I mean, television ads have such a significant impact in the race. It's hard to overstate that, even though we want to say that folks are going online and doing their research and attending these events. But, you know, when you've been inundated with Tom Steyer television ads and radio ads and billboards, that has an effect. And even if it doesn't convince people to say in that moment, I'm voting for Tom Steyer, it does make them want to give him a closer look, right? They know who he is. They want to find out more about him. Like you mentioned, we've seen him shoot up quite a bit in the polls. He's, you know, hanging hanging um, in the, the high, you know, tens, teens in the polls, um, which would seem to suggest that he will do, you know, much better here than he did in, in Iowa, New Hampshire, where he didn't have much of a much of a success at all. Um, and talking to voters just anecdotally, as I have at early voting sites, I am hearing quite a bit of support for Tom Steyer, even if he's not someone's first choice. He is often a second or a third choice as well, which could be important when this is kind of shaping up to be a race where it looks like Bernie Sanders is in the lead, but we're really not sure who's going to come in second, third, and fourth. So in the caucus process, if your candidate doesn't meet this viability threshold to receive delegates out of your caucus site, you get to choose the second candidate to caucus for. And so people's second choices are really important in this race. All right. So I want to actually get to that actual caucus process because there have been some questions in the wake of an Iowa caucus that was 
an unmitigated disaster, some might say, that Nevada's caucus might go a similar route, especially because at the beginning, Nevada was planning on using apps developed by the same app developer that was largely involved with the chaos in Iowa. So first, broadly speaking, how are things going to work on Saturday? And how is the party looking to head things off at the pass and make sure that things are smoother here than they were a couple weeks ago? Right. Well, let me just briefly walk through what folks can kind of expect when they show up at their caucus site on Saturday. Um, so it's important to know that you should get there early. Uh, that check-in will will end at, at 12. You can't get in line after 12. So you can get there a couple hours early if you want, an hour early. Uh, it's going to make the process easier. Obviously, the earlier you are, depending on what the lines are like on caucus day. Once you get there, you'll go see a volunteer. They will have a paper uh, voter roll printed out for that precinct. They will check you off. They'll also have a list of people who early voted, and they'll be cross-referencing your name on that list to make sure that you did not also early vote. Once you do that, they're going to give you um, a voter pin sticker, which they'll place on your paper presidential preference card. It's part of the caucus. You, you know, stand in your corners of the room or raise your hand in support of your candidate, but you actually also mark down your preference on a card. So they'll stick that sticker on your card. They'll also put a corresponding sticker in the voter roll. If you're not a registered Democrat, we have same-day voter registration here in Nevada. So folks will be able to fill out a paper voter registration form. They'll check in on a sign-in sheet where that pin sticker will be placed and they'll get their presidential preference card as well. The caucus itself will sort of proceed as, as usual. For folks familiar with the caucus, you get to make a first choice. You determine if your candidate's viable. If not, there will be a second choice. But the important thing to know in all of this is how the early voting data is going to be folded into this process. And for people who've been following the Nevada Independent or this podcast know Folks in the early voting process were allowed to select at a minimum of three, but up to five candidates just in case they need to be realigned as part of this process. And that's really what has made this change in the wake of Iowa so difficult is the party was planning on using these apps um, to do this realignment from early vote and bring that data into the caucus day process. But they've now changed and they're relying on this Google Forms based calculator. So if all goes according to plan, precinct chairs will have this Google form on an iPad They will go through at each point in the process, inputting the numbers from the number of people who are in person at the precinct. Then they'll click next and they'll be brought to a screen that will show them the number of early caucus goers from their precinct. They'll click next. They'll be able to input the results of the first alignment, click next, see the results from early vote. So it's very step-by-step process. But the goal of this tool is to make it easier for folks to do the realignment from early vote, though it's worth mentioning there will be a paper backup copy so precinct chairs can realign their early voters by hand if needed. All right. Now, part of the problem in Iowa was that volunteers who were helping run this process weren't prepared to use the app, and then the app malfunctioned on top of that. Now, are the volunteers in Nevada prepared for this technology? So the party has been training their volunteers since about the weekend on this new process using screenshots of the tool uh, to sort of explain how they can expect the caucus process to work. But the thing you have to note is that Nevada has only ha- only had some, you know, 11 days after Iowa's caucus to redesign this entire process. So details have been emerging. Um, and it's hard when you're working with volunteers. There's only so much the party can do to get them trained, right? They send out emails. They've offered webinars. The party yesterday said they're offering something like 55 webinars and in-person trainings for volunteers who either want a refresher or aren't aware of the new de- details and want to get those. Um, And so it's kind of on the volunteers to show up to these trainings and make sure they have the information they need. 
but it's hard because they volunteers have been training you know presumably for weeks but there's an entirely new process and so a volunteer might have thought okay i was good i i know how to run the caucus process but now there's an entirely new system the additional layer on top of this is that i mentioned their in-person trainings now and that's so that volunteers can get familiar with using the google forms tool for the actual caucus process um, but there's no guarantee that everyone's going to go through that training right and take the party up on this offer to use the tool firsthand so it stands to reason that some folks are going to be using this google form for the first time on caucus day but the party does have this, these sort of um, tech support aids volunteers that they've recruited to be kind of a tech support to help out um, precinct chairs in the event that they need help so they're trying to take steps to mitigate that as much as possible but it's a caucus process run by volunteers there's bound to be human error all right. And before we leave this caucus process, part of the issue in Iowa, again, was the fact that the results weren't available immediately after the caucus, and they weren't available for days after. Will there be results on Saturday? This is a question that everyone wants to know. And honestly, I, I don't know that we know. Um, obviously, the party's goal is to get results on Saturday. But you know, anything, anything could happen. We expected to have results in Iowa on the day of the caucus, and that didn't happen as well. So I don't know, it's 50-50. It really could go either way. Obviously, I think folks are optimistic that the system will work. And if it if it does work as as planned, we should get results on caucus day and it should be pretty straightforward. But if there's some sort of, you know, snafu that comes up, it's hard to say. Okay. Well, next we hear from you, Megan. We ideally will have results and we'll have a winner. But thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Hello. I am here with reporter Daniel Rothberg. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. We've been reporting all over the state on various uh, various early voting sites and, and, and prepping for the caucus and all of this. And so you've done some reporting about some of the rural areas that have been uh, doing early voting. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. I wrote a story with our intern, Tabitha Mueller. Our goal was to capture just the scope of the geography of Nevada and how that plays into the Nevada caucus, because Nevada is unique in many ways, in many ways from Iowa and New Hampshire. A lot of attention is paid to the difference in diversity, which is definitely true among the demographics of Iowa and New Hampshire. But another sort of unique aspect of Nevada is its size. It's a it's a very large state by landmass and the concentration of voters. In Iowa and New Hampshire, voters are a little bit more spread out. Even rural communities are, are fairly large and and not too sparse. But in Nevada, what you have is you have urban voters, or you have voters c- concentrated primarily in Las Vegas and then also in Reno. And the, the counties that those two cities are in make up about 89% of Nevada's population. So you can imagine most of the voters are there. But the story we were looking at is how campaigns have been going out into some of the more rural communities, which really are kind of the polar opposite of those cities, where those cities are very dense and a lot of the population lives in, in those two areas. Um, the rural communities are very spread out. Not a lot of people live in... There, there are a lot of small towns kind of scattered around the Great Basin. Not a lot of people live in one or two places. So we were looking at kind of the delegate math and why campaigns go out into the rurals, knowing that most of the, the voters are in the population centers and how that plays into kind of the strategy around their campaigns and, and thinking about the caucus in a thinking about caucus results as everyone's sort of 
at least as it appears right now, vying for the number two and number three slot. So uh, r- roughly 10 percent of the of Nevada's population is in the rural counties in, in here in the state. So why are campaigns going out to these rural counties if it's only 10 percent of the population? Obviously, these people matter, but it seems strategically like it would make sense to focus on those population centers. But obviously, that's not the case. I think there are three reasons you could point to. One is just sort of a general equity issue. A lot of campaigns want are emphasizing bringing in as many different types of voters as they can, whether they're rural, whether they're urban, whether they're from other from different demographics. They're trying to bring in as many voters as possible. So going out to the rurals helps them with that message that they can be a candidate that isn't just going to do well in the cities, but is going to do well across the board. But I think there's another reason specifically in Nevada, which is how Nevada law requires political parties, Republicans and Democrats to apportion delegates to each precinct. So in the smallest, most rural counties, each precinct receives one delegate for every five registered voters. In the largest counties, each precinct receives one delegate for every 50 registered voters. So in a sense, if, if you can when re- you combine if- that with the caucus rules of the viability threshold for candidates, it is sometimes requires less of an investment to pick up candidates in rural areas than it does in urban areas, just because of how the caucus operates. And then the third reason why I think a lot of campaigns go out into those areas is there is there is the step uh, where people are going out and caucusing and they'll get a certain number of delegates. But those delegates are not the national convention delegates that Nevada sends. Those are decided in two more successive events, the county conventions and the state conventions. So right now, right now, campaigns are picking up delegates for the county conventions. The national delegates are then apportioned by congressional district. There are four congressional districts in Nevada. In order to to get delegates in those congressional districts, it benefits the campaigns to have county delegates from not just one county, but lots of different counties. So campaigns want county delegates from Elko and not just Washoe County. They want county delegates from Nye County and not just Clark Clark County when you're looking at the congressional district down there. So- so there, there is there is a sort of a short term reason why kind of to prove that you appeal to a lot of voters and to boost your delegate count, showing that you're, you know, in second or third place and can compete. And then there's a longer term reason why, which is that it could actually get you more national delegates because you have to stay within a certain viability threshold. And all of this is really complicated. But those are sort of the three reasons why campaigns see an opportunity to go out to the rurals. So if, if if I was a candidate and I went to Las Vegas and I was trying to convince voters to vote for me, right, I would need to convince 100 people to vote for me to get two delegates. But if I went out to... No, no, that's that's not actually how it works. But that is what I thought, too. The, the delegates are already apportioned to the precincts based on the voter registration in the county, as I mentioned. So in the most rural, smallest counties... Each precinct gets one delegate for every five registered voters. That has already happened. Got it. Where the advantage comes in on caucus day is in order to advance from the first alignment, you have to have a 15% – you have to meet a 15% viability viability threshold. When you're in a rural area, 
it's likely that on caucus day there will be fewer people at the caucus and it's a lot easier to meet that threshold. Let's say you're at a five delegate precinct in a small county, let's say Eureka County, mm -hmm. and five people show up to caucus. Well, if you can get past the viability threshold. If one person votes right. for you. So, so essentially you could end up picking up five delegates there in a very low investment, easy way. Whereas if you were in Clark County at a five delegate precinct, you would be vying with tons and tons of people. The math is just a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. So, but, but then you also have to remember that the bulk of the delegates are in Clark County. Mm -hmm. So you can only do this to such an extent in the rural areas. It's not like there are a million delegates in the rural areas. The, the large percentage of delegates are still in Clark County. But it is one strategy for a campaign to boost its, boost its overall delegate count in a sort of lower investment way. Sure. Not necessarily an easier way because you still have to reach out to all these voters. There's yeah. a lot of ground game that has to go into it before. Have you, when you've been talking to voters, this is, like you said, this is very complicated. Have you found that they are frustrated with the caucusing process? Because I, on my first, when I was out talking to voters the first day of early voting, I was talking to a lot of people and they were very frustrated with the caucus process. Even early voting, mm -hmm. they were frustrated with it. They were just like, why don't we have a primary? Why don't we have a primary? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a, there is definite momentum among voters and uh, elected officials to, to do a primary you know, I think that there are there are positives and negatives to both things, and it can be argued. So I'm not going to state an opinion, <laughs> but um, I do think for voters the math can be very complicated. It will be interesting to see what it looks like in the in the coming cycles. All right. Well, we will we will hopefully have the results soon. But uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on and explaining this incredibly complicated process. So hopefully, you guys can understand it a little bit more, the listeners, and uh, you know. Have fun, uh, have fun out there reporting. We'll both be out there taking photos and talking to voters. Yeah, thanks. All right, and we are now at the last segment of the podcast, the, the, the fun segment where we get to kind of... We've been talking about movies a lot recently, but uh, this week we're going to do some trivia, and we've got reporter Jacob Solis here. And Jacob, you are going to start taking a bigger role in the podcast as well. That's right. I'll be helping out from down south. Yeah, we can uh, do some more statewide news coverage. You know, we'll uh, have you co-producing the podcast down in Vegas while I'm up here in Reno. It'll be a fun time. Yeah, and that, that little rural town of Las Vegas that no one knows about or talks about yeah, here in Nevada. <laughs> ever. Yeah, no one. It's often ignored, yes. Um, but anyway, we, we've got some trivia today, and we felt like it would be appropriate to do some kind of, you know, this was supposed to be campaign trivia, but I, as I was coming up with questions, it's definitely people that have attempted to run for president. It's just kind of bizarre presidential campaign trivia with some other stuff thrown in there. Um, but you, you are one of the smartest people I know when it comes to trivia. And so I am very curious to see how you do because these, I, I dug deep for some of these. They are, it's very unfair to you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you speak the truth. I am a trivia junkie in the worst way possible. But I, I really hope that these questions right here savage me. I want to get most of them wrong. <laughs> well, let's, let's, we'll just jump into it. All right. So the first question is, which president won the election with the fewest total number of votes? The fewest total votes? Yes, not the like, not the fewest, not the smallest margin, but like it, the total number of votes that he received. Uh, that's an excellent question. <laughs> I'm going to say um, John Quincy Adams. It was Thomas Jefferson. 
That was my second guess. Am I allowed <laughs> to say on this podcast? We can bleep it. <laughs> All right. Um, it was, so it was Thomas Jefferson in 1804, and he received 104,000 total votes. Wow. I mean, the man was a populist. I had assumed he would get more than that. A little disappointing for Tommy J there. but Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, question number two, which two members of the Whig Party have won the presidency? Of the Whig Party? The, the Whig Party in the 1800s. Oh, yes. Let's see. I'm going to say William Henry Harrison. No. Yes. Tippy Canoe, right? Yeah. Harrison and uh, have won the presidency before Polk. Tyler never won. Okay, I'm going to say the one is Harrison. I don't know who the other one is. It's William Henry Harrison in 1840, yep. And then Zachary Mm -hmm. Taylor in 1848. Taylor. All right, because I was like, Tyler wasn't elected, but I swear (laughs) to God he was a Whig. Anyways. (laughs) Um, So you're half a question. (laughs) I think a strong showing for me so far. So far, yes. So Gary Johnson ran against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016 election as a libertarian. What state was he governor of prior to running in 2016? Oh, now this is one I know and embarrassed for not being able to remember this. Let me, let me see if I can help you. He was governor between 1995 and 2003. Extremely not helpful. I'm just going to wing it and it's it the and western, say, western half of the United States. I'm really helping you out here. Arizona. New Mexico. God, I was, look, I should get credit for that because it's so close. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Arizona yeah. is just reverse New Mexico. It's basically the same state. Uh, so which incumbent president lost his election campaign and only received 23.2% of the vote? An incumbent who lost re-election mm-hmm. with and 23% of the vote. Tw- 23 is extremely low. What century is it in? It's the 1900s. Jimmy Carter. No. William Howard Taft in 1912. He lost to Woodrow oh, Wilson. Oh, that's right. Because, oh my Teddy, God, Roosevelt. because Teddy Roosevelt ran as a bull moose party. Yep. I was like, Jimmy Carter <laughs> didn't lose that bad to Reagan, but I was like... <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you've got half a question correct so far. That's right. I'm feeling are... good about myself. 1968 was the last time a third party won electoral college votes. Who was the candidate? In 1968, and it was a third party. Why can I not remember his name? I can give or you the party. Was... I'll give you the party name if you want. Sure. It's the American Independent Party. I just don't know. I'm, I'm blanking on this one. George C. Wallace. Oh, oh, how could I forget? How could I? Oh, my God. This now this is just shameful. I guess this is what I asked for, though. So I'm, I'm this is you wanted hard. You wanted hard questions. I'm giving them to I, you. some of these aren't even that hard. I'm, I'm proud of you, though. All right. This one. I think you might be able to get this one. What animal was the mascot of the bro of the of the prohibition of the prohibition party? An animal. Yeah. Well, we've got the donkey for the Democrats and the, and mm-hmm. the elephant for the Republicans. Uh, it's 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 a normal animal. It's a normal. It's an extremely normal four animal, so. four legged animal. Four legged quadrupedal. Okay, <laughs> this is an excellent start. Um, I'm gonna say, what is the most sober animal? And this is that, wrong. That that would be a good guess, actually. I think a sober animal. Well, yeah, a dry animal. <laughs> <laughs> what is the driest animal? What's I know the driest animal. Here, here's my logic on this one. What animal hates water? Cats. I know this is wrong, but this is my answer. <laughs> it's a camel. Oh. Oh, God. Is it because they're dry? Wow. I, I guess. <laughs> All right. Here's, I think this is maybe the strangest question I've got. Oh, beautiful. Former wrestler 
uh, Jonathan Albert the Impaler Sharkey ran for president <laughs> ran for president in 2012 against Barack Obama and Mitt Romney on a platform of justice reform by impaling criminals. He also claimed to be what? <laughs> oh my God! I, I um, can get, he, he he claimed to be a, uh, a, a a a mythical creature of sorts. Oh, a mythical creature. Um, I guess I don't know if it's mythical. Uh, a Something that's not real. <laughs> okay, now see, this one is definitely like I've got I've got zero percent knowledge of of Mr. Okay, Sharky okay. Here. Th- think about so, his name, Jonathan Albert the Impaler Sharky. Did he claim to be a vampire? He did claim to be a vampire. Oh <laughs> my <correct>. god! <laughs> <laughs> he claimed to be a vampire. Yes. Oh my god! Well, he did not receive the nomination. I'm up to one and a half here. One and a half out of seven or eight. One and a half out of eight. Or no, out of seven. Okay. Which presidential candidate ran the slogan, a stronger America, let America be America again, stronger at home, respected in the world? Now that is a winning presidential candidate? That is not a winning presidential candidate. That's a hint. Failing. Okay. Failed presidential candidate. Recent candidate. Recent candidate. Stronger. Recent-ish. Re- in it, it's in the last twenty years. Last twenty years, huh? Yeah, I'm really narrowing it down for you. What a slogan! One, extremely wordy. Oh God. I think that it was probably mainly used as just "Let America be America again." Last twenty years. Oh man, I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need another hint. Um, he was a Democrat. It was a Democrat. It was a Democrat. Now was this all right? All right. <laughs> uh, playing 20 questions here is this a democratic nominee this is the democratic nominee yes this is, oh. is so now you've got like four choices i've got i've got choices. a lot of i've got a lot of information here yeah i'm i'm just you know john Kerry. you're correct they <laughs> because you know yep. the iraq war but there you go john Kerry Look, against that, that only counts as that is only half a correct answer so i'm now up to two <laughs> correct answers uh yes sure and this is the the last one. I think you might get this one. I'm not sure. We'll see. Going for thirty percent here. Here is the. It's a quote, and you need to tell me who said this quote. A, a mere forty years ago, beach volleyball was just beginning. No bureaucrat would have invented it, and that's what freedom is all about. <laughs> and that was a Republican nominee for the presidency. He he was running for the nomination. He did not get he, the nomination. Oh, I see. I was about to say H W, but I won't. <laughs> It is an excellent quote, and I, I, you know, once again, you've stumped me, right, Joey. These, I'll give you, these are I'll give you the deep cuts. I'll give you the year, 2012. Oh, that doesn't help. <laughs> I don't know if you recall the field <laughs> in 2012. <laughs> it was uh, Newt Gingrich. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I would never have gotten that. Newt uh, Gingrich. Shame on me. So two questions. Oh, well, two and then two. Two, one, two out of nine. Two, 2.5 out of nine. It's not too bad. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jacob, thank you for doing this this wonderful trivia. I'm I'm sorry that I gave you too difficult of questions. <laughs> no, no, no. This is not too difficult. This is exactly what I wanted. I love that you got the vampire question. <laughs> it's really all that I wanted. <laughs> all right. Well, we will hear more from you very soon on the podcast. You'll probably be doing some hosting down there as well. So uh, keep your ears peeled for Jacob. That's right. Keep your ears peeled.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank our intrepid new podcast producer, Jacob Solis, for being on the podcast today, as well as Megan and Daniel. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to send us more fun trivia topics, you can do so by emailing me at joey at the nvnd.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at the nvnd.com. People with Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>